0: Good morning, everyone. This morning we're going to finish up our study of the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10, specifically verses 32 to 42. Now, as we all know, there's only one Gospel but four different presentations. Now, while all the Gospels present Jesus as the Messiah, each Gospel presents Jesus with a slightly different emphasis— The Gospel of Mark focuses on Jesus as the suffering Son of Man. The Gospel of Luke as the servant leader. The Gospel of John as the incarnate Word of God present at the very beginning of creation. However, in the Gospel of Matthew, one of the major themes is Jesus as a royal king and sovereign inaugurating the kingdom of heaven which is expressly mentioned several times in this gospel. Now, what we've been studying over the last couple of months is the very expansion of God's kingdom in the hearts and minds of men. Out of a world filled with rebellion, sin, pride, and godliness, the birth of this expansion was fraught with difficulty. Now, even the religious leaders at the time the Pharisees, they had created a system of empty worship and piety based on legalistic interpretation of God's law and stood at times violently opposed to Jesus and His followers and essentially violently opposed to the establishment of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. So in this chapter, we have Jesus preparing to send out His twelve And he had given them specific instructions, instructions that they were to avoid the Samaritans and not go to the Gentiles, but to specifically go to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, they were charged with both authority and the responsibility to drive out evil spirits, heal every disease, cleanse those with leprosy, and even raise the dead. Can you imagine that happening in your lifetime, even raise the dead. But at the same time, they were told to preach the message that the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, all of of these activities are classic examples of good shepherding. Knowing your sheep, feeding your sheep, leading your sheep, and protecting your sheep. God, actually, calls us to be excellent shepherds. He called the people of Israel back in the Old Old Testament times to be shepherds of His flock, of His people. Ezekiel chapter 34 actually is a beautiful chapter in the Old Testament. It essentially peels back the curtain, and you can actually see behind the scenes of God's true heart and His true commitment and His genuine love for us right down to the very individual. But the Pharisees of the day were not tending to the flock in the correct manner, in the manner with which God wanted them to be tended. So Jesus himself sent out his, his representatives to care directly for the sheep. We're going to go to Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 11. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. If you go back and read chapter 34, it's an excellent example of what God expects in terms of shepherding. You have to know your sheep. You feed them. You lead them. You protect them. And at the time... God was saying that since those charged with that responsibility were failing, that he himself would go forth and shepherd his flock. That's essentially what Jesus is now doing in sending out the twelve. So this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, being ushered in by Jesus himself, represented a new understanding, a new interpretation of God's kingdom, one that is now being born in the hearts and minds of men. Now, we have previously studied in the Sermon on the Mount, also in this gospel, some of the most beautiful teachings of Jesus in the entire New Testament. And these teachings emphasized God's desire for our very heart, not our empty religion. And now we begin to see this in practice. Heavenly citizenship requires a complete shift of one's worldview. We are all called to disavow the things of the world and embrace all the things of God. First John chapter 2, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now, dual citizenship has never been an option, right? We are either a citizen of the world or a citizen of God's heavenly kingdom. We are either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness, but we must make a decision, And so often, we Christians consider ourselves actually as having a foot in both worlds, don't we? Rather than having two feet in one world. Now, people of the world have both their feet firmly planted in the world. And so often, what we do is we'll shift our balance left to right, depending on what we feel the circumstances are. We exercise our worldly citizenship, so we think, at the detriment of our heavenly citizenship. Luke 16, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. We cannot serve both the worldly kingdom and God's heavenly kingdom. Now, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we are vested with certain privileges, blessings, and also responsibility and a measure of authority. There is a code of behavior. We must be obedient to the king, the sovereign of the kingdom of heaven. So the very first thing that is necessary of our heavenly citizenship is an acknowledgement. And now we get to the first verse of our study today, Matthew 10, 32. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. So if you acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God before men, He will acknowledge you and claim you as His own before God. And this is the very beginning of our faith, the proclamation, the exclamation that Jesus is our Lord and the Son of God. But ultimately, what does it mean to acknowledge Him? How do we acknowledge Him? And do we acknowledge Him fully all the time? Now, of course, we acknowledge Him with our very lives, our commitment to Him, our words and our deeds. Do we acknowledge Him perfectly? No, we fall short. But we are called to, in Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to Him, and He will make your path straight. Also, John 14 If you love me, keep my commandments. So ultimately, we acknowledge Him by surrendering. We acknowledge Him with complete surrender. 1 John 4, If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. Or in the ESV version, whoever confesses, that Jesus is the Son of God. God abides in him and he in God. So we must first acknowledge, confess Jesus as the Son of God. But actually, what can keep a believer silent? Romans 1, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So have you ever thought about who becomes a believer or might become a believer based on your witness, based on your proclamation, expression of your faith to obedience to the Lord? I recall many years ago I had a million-dollar bill in my pocket and I was at a market, and the Holy Spirit inspired me to witness to an employee there and give her the million-dollar bill. But I just didn't feel like doing it, and so I didn't. And I go and check out my groceries. And then I was so heavily convicted by the Spirit because I was silent, I went back and looked for her. I had that million-dollar bill in my hand. I was going to make it right. And guess what? She was gone. I lost that opportunity. Delayed obedience is disobedience. So my only recourse at that point would be to pray that another Christian brother or sister would be able to pick up the slack because I remained silent when the Holy Spirit asked me to present the gospel track. So after we acknowledge God and we surrender to Him, how does He acknowledge us? 1 John if anyone acknowledges me, acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. God acknowledges us by living in us. He dwells in us, His Spirit is in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's really interesting. Back in high school, I had an AP English teacher who was really brilliant, taught me how to write, taught us all how to read and process. But he was an avowed existentialist and atheist. And I remember one of his lessons from years ago to this day. I carry it with me. It was the concept of existential aloneness. The idea being that no one can understand what the other person truly feels because we're separated by these physical bodies. And that is a separation that cannot be breached. The concept of existential aloneness. Now, we as Christians know when the Holy Spirit is close and near, He's not next to you. He's inside of you, right? He feels and knows everything of what you're thinking and how you feel. There is no such thing as aloneness. When you're walking out there in the world, you are never alone. Physically, you may be alone with others or not with others, but with God, you are never alone. He acknowledges us by making us part of His heavenly kingdom, part of His family, but the key here is that he intercedes for us. Hebrews 7, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Romans 8, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now, what does it mean to intercede? It means to intervene between two parties with a view towards reconciliation. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's reconciling us to God. Now, I don't know about the world, but I do know that I am so thankful I have an advocate. I have somebody who's seeking to intercede between me and God, and I think all of us should rest in confidence and be joyful that we have such an intercessor. Jesus acknowledges us by interceding for us. We acknowledge God by surrendering to Him. There is an exchange. Surrender, intercession. Now, Jesus prepared His disciples very well. He told them to go out, how to go, to trust God completely for every provision, which is really actually a beautiful thing because God has made a... The number one provision for us actually is Jesus Christ. He is our sustenance. It's by Him that we breathe. And we can talk about God's provision. Let's look at the Old Testament when the Israelites were wandering in the desert. They had nothing. God provided for them with daily manna. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, I am the bread of life, sustenance. There's a symbolism there too because bread symbolizes family and communion, sustenance, provision. But in the Old Testament, God was providing manna for them every day and just like Jesus told these disciples, make no preparation for tomorrow. Why? Because I will provide you manna tomorrow. And if you collected more than what you needed for a day, that would rot and go sour. But more to the point, you were only to collect what you needed for the day. To collect more would be an act of faithlessness. It would be a way of saying, I don't know if you're going to actually give me manna tomorrow, so let me collect a little extra today. God's response to that was not a good one. What's amazing in these verses that God tells them not only to make no provision, and in fact, one of my favorite words in the English language is actually a Latin word, it's viatica. Viatica has two meanings. One is, viatica is the preparation that is made to take a journey. It's the food you put in your sack, it's your sleeping bag, it's whatever you think you're going to need for the journey, that's viatica. Viatica. But for those of you who have a Catholic background, the word viatica also means something in the Catholic Church. And actually, specifically, it's the last rites a priest delivers to somebody on their deathbed. Now, if you think about it, it's two exactly the same thing. One is a physical preparation for a journey, the other is a spiritual preparation for a journey, but they're both preparations for a journey. Viatica. Jesus here is saying, make no preparations for the journey. And not only that, as Mike explained a couple weeks ago, full disclosure, you're going to suffer all manner of persecution and trials. And God offered a tremendous amount of encouragement, as we learned last week, that He even knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows us so well and intimately. But now in these verses, we're seeing what the final result is going to be. Now, what's amazing about this persecution is that it was happening among God's own, very own people. God said, don't go to the Samaritans, don't go, right, to the Gentiles, but go to the lost sheep of Israel. God was saying, I am going to shepherd my flock, so, the foundation of His kingdom that was being born and expanded among the hearts and minds of men, in order to build that kingdom, the very foundation had to be shorn up. Luke chapter 11, 17, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided itself against itself will fall. The very foundations had to be strengthened. We go back to our verses, Matthew 10, 34. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Now, these verses are highly provocative. Jesus coming to separate families, to instill conflict and controversy in your very house even, how can that be? Well, there's a hint to understanding these verses in the Old Testament. Just to point out, everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. He is the fulfillment of God's law. He's the fulfillment of the festivals. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. So we'll go to Micah chapter 7. For a son dishonors his father... A daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. But as for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Savior. My God will hear me. Micah is actually depicting the rebelliousness and strife characteristic of Israel during the time of Ahaz but He does it in a way that foreshadows the turmoil and strife that results from the coming Messiah, even to the division of families. Now, Christ may bring peace to our hearts, but embracing the gospel also makes our life more difficult in some respects. Because Jesus demands allegiance that takes priority over all our natural ties. He demands allegiance over mother, over father, over any relation. Now, the contrast here is clear that even though there are enemies in your very own house sleeping under the same roof, a godly man in Micah, as an example, will wait on the Lord, will wait on the Lord, will pray to the Lord, will acknowledge God before men. God will acknowledge him even though that division has come into your very home. But the kingdom of heaven had to be built on a rock, a solid rock. The foundations had to be Christ himself. And we've studied that before, that Christ is that rock. Now, those of Israel at the time who did not accept the Lord would not be a part of that foundation. As God said back in Ezekiel 34 about shepherding, God said, I will shepherd the flock with justice. As for you, my flock, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another and between rams and goats. I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. It's really fascinating. This is the essence of good shepherding. And just as a side note, I'm going to tell you how to be a good pastor or a good shepherd or a good mini-church shepherd or even a shepherd in your own family. You have to know your sheep, you have to feed them, you lead them, and you protect them. But the key here is all you really have to do is pay attention, listen and watch. Because if you listen and watch those who you are to serve, You can see how they say what they say, why they say what they say, what they don't say, how they behave when they say it. And so when a problem is presented to you, you can actually sift right down to the core issue. That's good shepherding. That's good pastoring. Everybody is fed differently. So to know how somebody needs to be fed, you have to know who they are. The way to know who they are is to listen, pay attention, Right? Just as you would your own children. You listen and watch every little thing they do. That is good shepherding. Now, Jesus came to usher his people into a new kingdom, but he had to separate out the wheat from the chaff to shore up that foundation. Matthew 3, his winnowing fork in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, this is a clear reference to future judgment for those who are not in God's kingdom. They are not heavenly citizens. They are worldly citizens. But God is still building His kingdom today. That kingdom is in the here and now, but also in the not yet. It's in the already and the not yet. Hebrews 4, 12 For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It cuts to the very, very core of who we are. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Now, my response to those verses is hallelujah, praise God, because I want Him to know me better than I can even know myself. I am so thankful that His knowledge of me is not contingent upon my confession. Just because you are confessing to the Lord doesn't mean your understanding of yourself is comprehensive. God knows the truth. Now, the process of sanctification is clear. We want to become more and more like Jesus so that when you see me as an example, you see me less and less, you see Christ more and more. That's really the goal of sanctification. So as such, we learn to have a relationship with Him. We pour forth more. We see more truth about ourselves. We pour that forth. Truth that we didn't understand two years ago, we understand now. Truth in two years from now, I have no concept of, but I'll see that in myself as Jesus conforms us more and more to His image. But that is how God is so just. He knows the truth about us. It's not contingent upon what we know. But God is still building this kingdom even today. But faith in Him can still separate families. Now, after we acknowledge Him before others we surrender he acknowledges us before god he intercedes what's next matthew 6:33 seek first his kingdom and his righteousness or to put it another way matthew 10:37 back to our verses anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me Now, should God hold the highest place of affection in our hearts? Should we have any desire greater than our desire for God? This is really interesting. Back in high school, um, a friend of mine posed this question, and it was not a faith-based question. It was a faith-less question. But she said to me, why is it that God requires people to worship Him? The presumption being that he's capricious and vain and just needs people to worship him? That's a faithless way to frame the question. But really, the answer is both simple and very beautiful. Actually, it goes to the true nature, the true core of the gospel itself. The gospel is the presence of God. Jesus, God, loves us so much, he wants us to have the highest aspiration the highest affection possible, the very highest. Just as you, of those of you who have children, do you want them to aim to be second best, third best, aim for fourth best, tenth best in a subject or endeavor? No, you always want them to have the highest affection, the highest goal. God wants that for us as His children. So that begs the question, hmm, what's the absolute highest and best aspiration I could have? What's the highest and best love? It's God himself. God is the gospel. He is our provision. So what's interesting, people always say, well, you know, in heaven, what's that going to be like? Are we going to work? Are we going to recognize each other? Uh, Will I still be bald in heaven? And um, bottom line is, Scripture is very clear. No one has conceived of what God has in store for us. So, I'm telling you now, if you've thought it, that's not what it is, okay? And I actually am good with that. I don't need to have all the answers. I just want to know what God wants me to know. I'm good with it. I'm just totally good with it. It's the same thing in prayer life, I don't want to waste my time praying and striving for something and praying and praying and praying about it, right, if God does not have that set aside for me. So, the whole point of our relationship with Christ is to learn to listen to even a faint whisper, right? I would rather much do that than be disciplined down the road or waste 10 years praying for something that was never mine to receive. It's all about being in relationship with Christ. And that's why the prayers of a faithful man carry so much weight, as Scripture says. A faithful man and woman learns to want what God wants. You know, and so it's really a beautiful thing. So to have any love higher than your love for God is to diminish Him in your heart. If He's diminished in your your heart, the world begins to seep in, and your heavenly citizenship is also diminished. Now, just a few days ago, there's a well-known woman, a young woman in her 20s. She's a pop star. Everybody knows her. Um, She said in an interview that at the age of 14, she made certain series of confessions about lifestyle choices and other activities to her mother, who was a Christian woman. And she made these confessions when she was 14. And now as a young adult, in the interview she said, it was so hard for her to understand. She didn't want me to be judged, and she didn't want me to go to hell But she believes in me more than she believes in any God. I just asked her to accept me, and she has. There's so much being said in this quote, but the thing that jumps out on my page is, how was her mother silent in her faith that her daughter could say with a straight face that the mother loves her more than any God? She's basically witnessing against her mother and her commitment to Christ. This is not where our culture is going, people. It's where it already is. Self-love and acceptance goes first and foremost, and then maybe God, second or third. Or if you have a foot in both worlds, when I'm in trouble, I'll lean on God. When things are going well, I'll forget to be thanksgiving and lean on myself. The key to all of this is we tend to be obedient to the actions and behaviors that we believe will result in us receiving the desires of our heart. And we all know this is to be true. You're striving for a job. You have a job interview. You will dress well. You'll present yourself better than you ever could. You believe that being obedient to that, to that standard, will help you achieve your heart's desire. Same thing when you're wooing or courting somebody, a potential spouse. Typically, you will be very careful in how you behave, what you say, what you do, what you don't do. And you'll do that in such a way to improve your chances of attracting that spouse. Now, Jesus knew this. That's why He said in Matthew 10, 38, Whoever does not take up their cross and follow Me is not worthy of Me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow Me. This is really interesting. So what is the cross that we are to take up? Now, many people consider that to be a trial or a burden, and we hear it all the time. People express a challenge in their own lives, and usually a long challenge, And they sigh and go, that's just my cross to bear. And we've all heard people say that. I'm telling you this morning, that is not your cross to bear. The cross is neither a trial nor a hardship, but rather total surrender of ourselves to God. We must be willing to die to ourselves and even to this very life now, what's the most often the greatest hindrance to full commitment to Jesus? What's the often the number one reason? Yes, that's exactly right. Love of oneself. Galatians 5. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep step with the Spirit. What, what is being said here? If the object of my true love, my first love, is Christ, I'm going to make sure my actions, my words, conform to the standard that is going to improve my relationship with Him as my first love. Our daily lives either confess and affirm Him or they deny Him. And without a complete surrender to the Lord, we are living on the margins in a religious way and not in the way that God desires. Now, what's interesting about surrender, many, not all, some people have a little hidden aisle in their heart that is not given over to God, a little kernel of reservation. We save that sometimes for ourselves. It's an area where you are not completely surrendered. Many of us have ongoing struggles. I'm here to encourage you to recognize any struggle is an area that you have not fully surrendered. God is conforming us more and more to be like Jesus in, His, in our obedience to His truth and His teachings and into the, to His ideals. What's interesting is that there is a relationship between surrender and provision. Jesus Christ is God's provision for us. Now we'll go back to the manna. What happened? The Jews were getting the manna, right? After a while, there's only so much you can do with that, by the way right? After a while, some of them got very tired of God's provision. What did they say? Which now leads to what I think is the greatest insult in the entire Old Testament. That's my personal opinion, but it jumps out at me every time I read it and slaps me across the face. In face of God's provision, they said, my soul loathes this detestable bread. Why is that such an insult? Think about it. It's not just I don't like the bread. My very soul, the very core of who I am, the very essence that you yourself put in me, you can't go any deeper than that, loathes, not dislikes, Not hates, but loathes. Loathing is, means, to hate it now. I hate it now. I despise it now. But since I'm loathing it, I plan on despising it tomorrow. And the next day, I'm hating into the future. That's what loathing is. So it's not just, I don't like. It's my core of my being hates it now. We'll hate it tomorrow. We'll hate it forever. I loathe it. I loathe it arriving in the morning. And then referred to God's very provision as this detestable bread. Jesus himself said in the Gospel of John, I am the bread of life. There is clear symbolism here. He is our provision. He is our sustenance. I am the bread of life. God did not respond very well to that huge insult. But I'll tell you what it speaks to now Is all of us, yes, we strive and we struggle and we want more. We want some of this. It's always greener on the other side of the fence. But really, the first position should be thankfulness for the provision that God has already given you. And to want more of this and less of that and to struggle to get this and different from that or get like somebody else is a way of saying, I detest your provision. So really what I've learned in the years is to develop a relationship with Christ so much, as I said before, that you could hear just a whisper and to want only what He wants for you. That's how you are content in your life. That's the secret to contentment. To be in line with God's will, to seek and strive for everything that God wants for you, So I'm not suggesting to be lazy. Seek and strive for everything. That's what I want for me. I want everything God wants for me. I don't want one thing. I don't want to want one thing. That is not something that God wants for me. Right? Praise God. So we want to have a solid relationship with Him so we know and we learn. You will have so much peace in your life Jesus is the bread of life. So in order to take up our cross and follow Him wholeheartedly, we must be completely lost in Him. So Jesus says, Matthew 10, 39, Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Now, this verse is one of the greatest paradoxes in the New Testament. Now, inasmuch as our affections are not of this world and not of the kingdom of heaven, we may find our lives here, but we will lose our heavenly citizenship. We must be willing to lose our worldly citizenship for an eternal life in God's kingdom. We do this for the sake of Jesus. We go out in the world and we make disciples. It's a rough world out there, as we know. Increasingly so here, but definitely around the world, you can lose your life, lose your family instantly by proclaiming Christ. It's really interesting, though, a note of fellowship, of true fellowship. At the Tower of Babel, what happened? All the languages got scattered. What people generally tend not to realize is that culture is born from language. So when the language was scattered the cultures were scattered. Language is not a one-for-one translation from one language to another. Language and culture represents an entirely different way of thinking, an entirely different way of presenting yourself to the world. The worldviews are totally different. There are concepts that just simply don't translate. So at the Tower of Babel, when God spread out the languages, all the cultures were spread out as well. Who can tell me when all the languages were brought back together? Pentecost. God gave us a new spiritual language where you could hear someone speaking in their own tongue and you understood what they were saying. Gave us a new spiritual language through the Holy Spirit. So it follows suit that when that occurred, guess what was born? A new Christian culture. So I'm here to tell you, I've traveled all over the place. I've lived in Middle East, Europe, Africa, everywhere. I could go into a Christian Bible-believing church not being able to speak a word of the native language, but guess what? I knew that I was home. Just as you, yes, just as when you walk in the doors of Hope Chapel, you know, you know you're home. So when we say we're a family, it's the truth, it's not just a label that we apply. We are truly a family to our very core, and we are also blood relation, believe it or not. Jesus Christ, we're reconciled through His blood, we are all blood relation now. So when you're called brother and sister, it's not just a label, it's a reflection of the core, the essence of who we are in Christ, united by His blood. But Jesus knew that going out in the world, especially in times that were uh, difficult and there was persecution and all manner of trials and problems, hospitality among the believers would be key. Matthew 10.40, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes one who sent me. We exercise the community of faith by welcoming those who are doing his work. Matthew 10.41, whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. This is really amazing and beautiful. What is a prophet's reward? We go back to the Old Testament to understand. So I've encouraged you to read Ezekiel chapter 34, which is all about shepherding. And now I'm encouraging you after today to go home and read 1 Kings chapter 17. This is Elijah, God's prophet, There was a drought in the land, there was no rain, and Elijah's out in the middle of nowhere. So God says, you will drink from the brook, while the brook was still there, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. Can you imagine? The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now that's provision, right? That's actually better than Amazon Prime. Because Amazon Prime, you have to wait 24 hours, right? That's actually the first home delivery service in the Old Testament. But can you imagine the very ravens bringing you God's provision? So, this is really interesting. After a time because of the drought, the brook dried up. God told Elijah to go into such and such a town You'll find a widow there. She has a son. So Elijah went into the town and asked the widow, please give me some bread and water. What's really beautiful about this is that widow and her son, she had all she had left was a handful of flour and a little bit of oil in her jug. And she said, I'm getting ready to go home to essentially make our last meal and die. That's how tough the situation was. But she did what Elijah asked. She welcomed him. She used her last resources to feed him and give him water. She welcomed God's prophet. So let's look at what happened. 1 Kings seventeen fourteen. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says... The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah told her, so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and for her family. She welcomed the prophet. She welcomed God. She provided for him what little time, one last meal, the prophet's reward. She was fed and her family was taken care of during the drought. That's a prophet's reward. But then it goes a step further. Sure enough, after some time, the son falls ill and dies. But Elijah was in her house and he prayed to God three times to resurrect her son. And what do you think happened? He was resurrected. Now, that's truly a prophet's reward. So, by receiving Elijah, she received a prophet's reward because God was taking care of Elijah. She received Elijah, so God took care of her. It's really interesting, this principle. We learned about it in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. While the Jews were in exile in Babylon for 70 years, now, they were well known for being sinful, idolatrous people. You had... God's chosen people living in exile among them. But God said to them, look, you be a blessing to those people because as it goes well for them, it will go well for you. There's a process. There's a relationship. And sure enough, rather than sit back in judgment, they engaged in the society. And some of them were elevated to high positions in the government. Just as we as Christians... We're called now to engage in the world, right? Carry forth our cross, engage in the world, and stand for God. Because look what happened with Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. King Nebuchadnezzar built this huge idol of gold. He said, guess what? Everybody in my kingdom is going to bow down to this idol when you hear certain music being played. So sure enough, music gets played. You're out in the marketplace Everybody stops what they're doing, and they bow down. And who's left? Standing. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, as an example, standing there. You couldn't hide it. You had both feet in God's kingdom. You can't hide that. So they're standing there. So, of course, the accuser swooped in, told the king, these men who you have elevated in your own kingdom are not worshiping your idol. So the king got very upset and called him forth and said, I'll give you one last chance. We'll play the music you need to bow down and worship. Now, this answer is so beautiful. It's just amazing what they said. It was acknowledgement and surrender, just what we're talking about today. They said, Look, the God whom we serve is able to save us. Acknowledgement. But. If he does not save us, surrender, it's God's will. If he does not save us, guess what? We're not bowing down. So the king got so upset that he heated up the furnace seven times stronger, so much so that the men who took Shadrach, Meshach, Abed to go and throw him in there also died. It was so hot. And the king saw not three men in there but saw four and said the fourth man had the appearance of an angel of God. And when they came out, not a hair was singed, there wasn't a string on their linen that was burnt, nothing. And so what happened? King Nebuchadnezzar then praised the God of Israel. So again, when we make our proclamations and we surrender unto God, we don't know what the effect is going to be, but it can be a very powerful effect really, really tremendously beautiful, these verses, actually. Now, the prophets weren't always well received. There were trials and tribulations. Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 10:42, our last verse for the morning, "'And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. By not overlooking even simple acts of service among the body, we proclaim our heavenly citizenship.'" That's really interesting. One of the things I learned, I helped uh, Pastor Bruce establish the Crenshaw Ministry of Community of Hope all those years ago. Um, and back then, you struggle and you think, how can I serve? What can I do? And I realized something, that if you are feeding the hungry and clothing people who need it, you can do no wrong. God will never say to you, oh, you know, you fed a lot of people and clothed a lot of people, so I'm angry with you. That would never be said. So here what's being said is, even a simple cup of water, you will not lose your reward. Even a simple act of hospitality and service, God will not find complaint. People always would ask me back then, you know, I, have, I don't know what my gifting is. I go to church, and I don't know what ministry to get involved in, et cetera, et cetera. And first thing I would always say, go out and feed some people who are hungry Right? In Crenshaw, that's what we would do. We had clothes there too and games for the kids. Go out and serve, and serve people. God will not find fault. So, hospitality is key. Exercising hospitality in a world where persecution and even death could be waiting around any corner was extremely important. So, a cup of cold water for a thirsty servant on a very hot day symbolizes the relief that we can give each other, and we should. So in conclusion, we have here in this chapter, it's really beautiful, it's the birth, the inception of God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the inception of it in the hearts and minds of men and women. And it started with a decision and acknowledgement, and that kingdom is still being born today, even in us now. It starts with a decision, an acknowledgement of faith, We acknowledge Him. He acknowledges us. We surrender to Him. He intercedes for us. It continues with the foundation being shored up. It requires our very first love to be God, nothing else. It is born out of our action, our obedience, and humble service, even unto death. We lose ourselves in it, and we gain true life. And we accept and serve other servants along the way as God continues to build His kingdom among us. Father, in Jesus' name, we praise You and we thank You for Your Word and Your...